Let's turn our attention now to God's Word. Uh, I'm going to invite Christy to come and read for us. The, the uh, passages are printed on the wall behind me and in your bulletin. Sorry, I forgot to set it up for you. Matthew 6, 1 through 8. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 23, 25-28 Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Philippians 2, 3-11 do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, your word is power, and it can come in and break up the hardest places. And so we pray, Father, for that within our own hearts today. We pray, Father, that you'd give us ears to hear. We pray, Father, you would speak to our hearts. We pray that we would leave this place knowing that we have met with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in a series on the seven deadly sins, and I found that Kind of every generation has their take on the seven deadly sins. So for baby boomers, that was Gilligan's Island. So uh, all the characters in Gilligan's Island 
were different of the vices. So you had Skipper, who was anger. You had Gilligan, who was sloth. You had Ginger, who was lust. You had Mr. Howell, who was greed. Mrs. Howell, who's gluttony. Uh, the professor, who's pride. And Marianne, who's envy. All right, mind blown right now, right there. Um, uh, Gen Xers, uh, we had Seven, the, the movie, kind of gruesome movie with Morgan Freeman. And uh, who else was that? Brad Pitt, I think, was in that. Um, gross and dark like Gen Xers. Right? And, then, uh, and then for millennials, though, man, there's no better kind of retelling of the seven deadly sins than that satire on our love of technology called Black Mirror. So Black Mirror is the, the, the show that's come out with studies or sort of episodes on the device that is a black mirror for the human heart. And I think of all the seven deadly sins, black mirror covers the one we're looking at today the very best. The one for today is called vainglory. Now, that may not be a word you use often, but that's a Bible word. In Philippians 2, our passage for today, uh, the, the King James Version of Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Let me give you a little history on the, 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 the seven deadly sins. Uh, there was a time that the seven deadly sins was actually eight, called the eight deadly thoughts, and included both vainglory and pride. Over the centuries, though, some said, well, pride is sort of the root underneath all of the seven deadly sins and removed pride from the list, and vainglory stayed on the list. But over time, because people don't know what vainglory is anymore, uh, it's sort of been subsumed into pride and, and sort of combined together. And vainglory is not something we talk about. It's not something we know much about. Um, so let's talk about vainglory and its ugly cousins. Uh, what's the difference between pride and vainglory? Summed up in a few words, the difference is this. Pride says, I think I'm someone great. Vainglory says, I want you to think I'm somebody great. It's about concern about what other people think. Prideful people want more than anything else to be number one. Vainglorious people want everybody else to think that they're number one and to see them as number one. Vainglory will seek whatever it can in whatever venue uh, to get the most public applause, whether it's deserving or not. It is an excessive and disordered desire for recognition and approval from others. So, a couple of examples for this. The prideful student will want to be the top of the class. The vainglorious student will want the grades posted with the names so you can see who's at the top of the class. The, the prideful person will want to direct the best play ever directed. The vainglorious person will want the rave reviews in the newspaper. The whole point for vainglorious, the vainglorious is that other people notice. Other people give their approval. Vainglory causes us to be more concerned about reputation than substance. It's the opposite of the North Carolina state motto. You know what the the North Carolina state motto is? Come on, help me out. To be and not to seem, right? To be and not to seem. Well, vainglory is to seem and doesn't care about what is. It's about seeming, not substance. And vainglory is not just vanity. Now, it's, it's, it can be packed. Vainglory is definitely a, vanity is part of vainglory, but vanity is, is maybe in some ways the like, JV version of vainglory. It's the easiest to spot. Somebody who cares to show off their body. 
It's somebody who cares to have their body looked at and seen and admired by other people. And we look at that and we're like, oh yeah, vanity, vanity, you know, that's, that's, that's sinful. And, but that's probably the simplest and easiest form of vainglory. Vainglory is also not simply ambition. Ambition seeks the honor and respect of, of, for good work, but from a particular person, an authority, a teacher, the coach, the boss. See, ambition wants accolades and approval from that person who's the expert. But vainglory is not so discerning. It's, it's anyone and everyone. Anyone and everyone. As long as everyone, it's, it's about the show, the manifestation of excellencies. We want to be seen, known, and admired. That's why it has these two words that are part of it. Vain and glory. We, we're hungry for glory. But like that old, the word vain is used in older words, it's empty. It's like dust. It's empty glory. You remember Alice in Wonderland? One of the problems with Alice over and over in that story is that she's either too big or she's too small. And vainglory does that to us. We're either thinking about our own glory and, and, and visions of greatness for self, or we're mired in trivialities that have to do with our image. We're not the right size. We're out of proportion. Now, think about this. Is a desire for recognition always bad? I mean, no. There's innate an innate desire within us as children to seek the approval of others and the respect of others. And that could be a good thing. One writer, Shaden Ramey, refers to recognition as the cornerstone of self-esteem. She says, we all need to be recognized. It's not a matter of pride or selfishness or immaturity. Human beings from the earliest moments of their lives absolutely need respect and affection from those around them. So we, we could see that all the time. A child who wants to please the teacher, wants to please the parent, an employee who wants to please the boss. Those are good things. Take, for example, stay-at-home mom. Most of her work is not seen by other people. Sometimes it's not even valued and, or counted as work. Have you ever heard people say, do you work or just stay at home with the kids? As one who has six kids, I know there's no just staying at home with the kids. Talk about work. Uh, she knows in her heart that her investment is worthwhile. And, but she struggles because not everybody recognizes that. There's nothing wrong with that kind of desire for recognition. But here's the thing. A desire for recognition can easily, easily become a disordered desire. A desire for recognition can become a need for recognition, a need for applause, a need for approval, so much that we will take whatever recognition, whether it's deserved or not, whether it's for real or even perceived goods in us. Vainglory will do so on a wide variety of fields. It doesn't matter. Non-discerning, we can do it in any context. It is a disordered desire. And what's worse is it's also disordered love. You know, we, we looked at this passage here, and as I said, the, old English, the, the older English King James Version of this passage in verse 3 talks about vainglory, selfish ambition, vain conceit, strife and vainglory. And, and one of the things about this passage is it shows us what a life looks like that's free from vainglory. Not looking to self, but looking to the interests of others. Caring more for the honor and esteem and care of others, right? That's what's pictured here. And vainglory takes those things and not only flips it on its head, but turns it inside out. 
Because vainglory is not just like, hey, I'm supposed to look to other people's interests, and I don't. It's that I want you to, I'm not only am I, am I not looking to your interests, I want you, your main interest to be me. See, it's much more evil. It's a desire, not only it's a lack of love for others, it's a desire at all costs for your love to be for me. Like me. Love me. Like my picture online of my new tan or last meal or new car or awesome vacation. Like me. Love me. This is why this is the black mirror sin. Because it's all about being seen, appearing. It's the anti-Philippians too. Be concerned about me. The writer W.H. Auden would point us out of vainglory to an old mythological story. You remember the story of Narcissus? Narcissus is going by, walking along one day, and he sees a pool of water, and he catches his reflection, and it catches him. And he's drawn to it, and he, he, he... Instead of moving on with anything else in his life, he's drawn to staring at his reflection in the pool of water to the end of time. W.H. Auden says this. says, Narcissus does not fall in love with his reflection because it's beautiful, but because it's his. He says, if it was just about beauty that had enthralled him, after a few years, as his beauty fade, he would have been able to move on. We find that we're all also caught up in that narcissus-like pull. There's been a study that's been done on American marketing. And they found for storefront, storefront stores, like in downtown Raleigh, walkable stores, they found that you can drive up sales if you will put mirrors on the outside of your building. Because we, we might walk by the goods, but we won't walk by ourselves. <laughs> Just a look. And, and maybe that store has something for me since they like me too. How does selfish ambition and vain conceit manifest itself in us? I'm sure you could come up with a list, but I've got 10 for you. You knew this was coming. Um, See if you can identify with these. What about going along with the crowd just so that we will fit in? This isn't just the middle school sin. right? This is when we laugh at a joke that really we wouldn't think is funny. We say something that we really regret later on. We, we, we do something. We pressure it into something. Like, what am I doing here? It's vainglory. Exaggerating. We do this in our stories. Have you ever noticed a group of friends will come together around dinner and somebody starts with a story and it sort of gets one-upped? We do this one-upmanship thing with stories. And doesn't it help if they're just a little embellished? If you just make them a little bit funnier. You just add a couple things in there. It's vainglory. Hiding. It's ironic in this era of when you think about presenting an outward appearance, one of the things you have to do in order to present an outward appearance is to hide some parts of yourself. Because there are things we'd rather people not know. And in order for people to see this great facade, you have to hide other things. It's vainglory. Gossip. We all know gossip is wrong. Somebody has estimated uh, that 60% of all adult conversations have to do with somebody who's not present. Man, we love and we hate it. But it's vainglory. What about doing good to be noticed? Have you ever done something uh, among your friends, among your family, and no one noticed? And you're just so disappointed. It's just like you have this aftertaste. Like, come on. 
Y'all were supposed to see that. That was really good. I was really good today. You want, you want to test this? Ask yourself if you're vainglorious. Try doing some anonymous things for others this week. Good things where you intentionally try not to be noticed. And see what happens if you don't get that same aftertaste. No one noticed that. What about boasting? I mean, the only way you can be impressed with what I've done is if I tell you. I need you to know. So I'm not boasting. I'm just telling you. It's just information, right? It's just information you needed. Uh, what about taking credit for someone else's joke or work or idea? Or, or maybe not taking credit, but not correcting the impression that it's not yours. Self-promotion. We know, all know uh, that we're in a world about self-marketing. And so your Pinterest page and your resume, your social media online, your, um, your job applications, everything has to be Photoshopped. You know, we don't post the pictures of ourselves mid-chew, do we? Right? No one wants those. What about the inability to receive a compliment? That's a nice shirt. Oh, this old thing? I, I've had this for five years. In other words, like, yeah, say more. Or what about this one? It only cost me $4. Right? You know, and it's, I mean, we, we do these things because we can't receive a compliment, but we're like, oh, yeah. Look at how frugal I am. Uh, you know, look at how, how, how I hold on to things. Um, finally, just plain old flexing. I mean, just showing off your skills, your knowledge, your looks. Uh, outrageous tattoos, Bible tattoos, perfect hair. Job titles, letters behind our name, the greenest, most well-manicured lawn, ability to know fine, to be that person in the group who knows the wine on the list to order, the, car, the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, in fact, if we don't own a car, right? Um, we can use any and all things. We are adept at playing on any surface this game, the vainglory game. We're just scratching the surface. This is why the Desert Fathers likened Vanguard to an onion. You begin to peel off layers, and there's more underneath, and soon everyone is crying. <laughs> but I haven't told you the worst. The worst is this. This is the most Christian sin. This is the most Christian sin. If you look in the Bible for examples of the vainglorious, they're always religious people. They're always religious people. They're always, church fathers pointed out the, the greatest temptation from vainglory comes from when we have virtue. We've made progress. There's good in our lives, and when it goes unnoticed, and we're disappointed by that. John Chrysostom said, While other vices find their abode in the servants of the devil, vainglory finds a place in the servants of Christ. So while it may be just awesome that you've made progress this year in your prayer life, or progress this year in doing battle with the flesh. You may have grown in your ability to love Scripture, but here's the problem. There's always a dark side to that growth. There's always a way it turns into a place of showing off goodness or taking pride in it, displaying it for other people to see. And what it is it? At the end of the day, it's robbing God. It's stealing from God taking credit for things that we didn't do in and of ourselves, that His Spirit did in us, or getting praise for what seems to be the case in us. Jesus confronted vainglory. We read the passages from 
uh, Matthew 6 and Matthew 23. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, you sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be praised. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Or Matthew 23, woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Imagine you go to a really nice restaurant this week. I mean, one of those ones that's got tablecloths made of fabric, right? You know, and they're playing music, and there's a real person playing music. And the, everything on the table is not made of plastic, right? You know, it's like a nice restaurant. You know, and you sit down to this meal. The, the waiter is crisp in all aspects of like delivering the menu and describing what the specials are and attentive to your every need. And you get through a tremendous meal and you come to dessert and they bring you your coffee. And as you're sipping your coffee, you look down in the cup and there's a little hunk of mud and the remnant of a slug inside. Yeah, I love gross stuff to talk about from the pulpit. Yeah, I don't care how good the rest of the meal was. They get one star on Yelp. Like, you're never going back there again, right? Because while the outside looks great, it's the inside that matters. No, I don't want nothing to do with that. Jesus said that was exactly what the Pharisees had done. They went through all the right motions of religion, doing the things that made them look good on the outside, and yet on the inside, there's mud and the slug. That's what's really going on. But look, before we like dismiss those naughty, bad Pharisees, I want to think with you, like, if I were to write a modern paraphrase of the New Testament, who would be the people who would appear as Pharisees? Who would be those people? You know, a lot of times we're, we say things like this. The Pharisees, oh, they were the ones who believed that you earn your way to heaven. That's not true. That's actually a modern New Testament gloss. The Pharisees didn't believe you earned your way to heaven. They loved the Scriptures. They wanted to obey all of God's revelation. They loved God and wanted to be near Him. If I were to write a modern paraphrase of this, who would be the Pharisees? Christ the King Church. The PCA. We who love the Bible, who want to obey God, who are faithful in worship, who love, love, love obeying what he's in, what, what's in this book and knowing what's in this book. This, was, this is us, y'all. This is us. Vainglory is insidious. Vainglory takes genuine spiritual progress, love of God's Word, love of worship, love of the things of God, and makes it about us. You know, the Roman generals, they all wanted their names carved in stone so that everybody could see them. Their great exploits, their great deeds. But we do the same thing. We want our names known. We want people to see us. The Desert Father John Cassian warns, Beware of your spiritual successes, especially your victories over sin, lest they become an occasion for showing off and falling into vainglory. One of the primary reasons Jesus constantly warned the Pharisees was a love of what's on the outside, externals. Outwardly, they showed respect for their, dedica they showed respect for their dedication and commitment to the law, but it was all about the show. I'm afraid we are too. 
You know, beware when your name is in the bulletin. Beware when you're known in your community group as the person who knows the Bible the best. Beware when other people at at your work are like, man, he is such a great Christian. Beware when you're a pastor of a growing church. See, vainglory is deadly. It's a deadly sin. And it's deadly for two reasons. First, because we're stealing glory from God. We're taking credit for things that are only by His Spirit in our lives. The fact that you're making progress, that you love Him, you love His Word, that's from His Spirit, and it's such a gift, and you didn't do it. It's also being satisfied with what looks like spiritual progress on the outside, but is empty on the inside. What what do we do with this? I mean, what do we do? What do you do with your glory-stealing hearts? The problem is not just the love of attention. It's that you love glory, and I do too. And we want it for self. Like me, love me. It's not easy just to stop it. Our hearts are glory hungry. We love the applause of the crowd, the like on the Instagram, the affirmation of other people. See, like un- unlike other sins, we're, we're about to go from the spiritual list to the bodily list of the seven deadly sins. We're about to move into gluttony and lust and anger. But these spiritual ones, especially this one, are particularly insidious. This is particularly dangerous. And those who think they're least susceptible to this are like little flies caught in the spider's web of vainglory. So lest you walk out of here today and you think, I've got a friend who needs to hear this sermon. The spider of vainglory is already coming. You're already caught. But this is why Philippians 2 is such a gift for vainglorious people like me. Philippians 2 is such a wonder in the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, If you you read it slowly, you'll realize the first part of it, and we didn't print verses 1 and 2, but the first part of it, those first four verses, sound like a study on a life free from vainglory, where you look not only to your interests, but the interests of others. You care more more about honoring and promoting others. And then you get a nice little story about Jesus how he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He lowered himself, taking the form of a servant, humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. Right? Sounds like a great little story, but these are not happenstance that these are super glued together because this is good news for the vainglorious. It's good news. And Paul invites us here, vainglorious as we are, to consider Jesus. That's the first part of this. What do you do with with your vainglorious heart? You consider Jesus. B.B. Warfield... um, lived in the 1850s to the to 1920s, um, he wrote a, a, a sermon that I think is a particularly powerful in outlining how this particular vice needs this particular passage. And this is what he said, reflecting on this. He entitled it, in, Imitating the Incarnation. He says, Christ did not cultivate himself, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led by divine impulse out of the world, driven back into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs until to gain his own esteemed worth, all sacrificed to him. He was led by his love for others out into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all upon the altar of sympathy. Now, that's amazing. Here's Jesus, who is, of all people who's ever lived, Can we just say he's probably the most well-balanced person? 
He, he probably had the best sense of self. Can we say Jesus probably had decent self-esteem? Would you agree with those things? And yet, how did he nurture that? He didn't. He forgot self. He emptied himself. He set self aside. He set self aside so that he could pursue and love and empty himself and even go to a cross to bleed for the vainglorious. Jesus sets himself aside. Consider Jesus. Second, though, we see this. This is not just an interesting story about Jesus. It's a call for us to follow him in doing the same. Again, B.B. Warfield says this, self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of people. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellow people. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self and others. It means entering into every person's hopes and fears, longings, and despairs. See, following Jesus means becoming more and more other-focused in, in being full of empathy, considering others better than selves. And to give up vainglory means we relinquish the rights to self, the place of self at the center of attention. We adopt this phrase over our lives. It's not about you. It's not about you. Johann Sebastian Bach was famous not only for writing good music, but for at the bottom of every page, writing soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. That's what's under the signature of those who are repenting, learning to repent of vainglory. Warfield says this, this is the result. As we follow Christ in this way, it will dry up vainglory's springs at their source. We cannot be self-consciously self-forgetful. We can't be selfishly unselfish. Only when we humbly walk this path, seeking truly in it not our own things but those of others, we shall find the promise is true that he who loses his life shall find it. Only when, like Christ, and in loving obedience to his call and example, we take no account of self, but freely give ourselves to others, we shall find each in his measure the saying true of himself also. Wherefore also God hath highly exalted him. The path to self-sacrifice is the path to glory. Man, I love that. I love that. It is so true. Following Jesus always means going to his cross and then taking up yours. Whatever preacher stands before you and doesn't hold up taking up your cross is trying to sell you something. Because the way to follow Jesus is following him to death. There can only be resurrections in your life if there's death. And the only way we deal with vainglory is not by trying to contain it, but by trying to kill it. By saying, this is deadly. It's killing me. It's robbing my God, and it must die. And following him means laying all of that before him, taking up your cross and following him. But one last thing, and this is great news for us today. One thing that you may not notice about Philippians 2 is we read it there, it looks like a paragraph, but it's no paragraph. Bible historians agree this is a poem. It's actually a song. It's, it's called, been called the Carmen Christi. It's considered one of the earliest hymns of the church, verses 5 through 11. It's lyrics to a hymn that they sang over and over again in the early church. And that is key for us, the vainglorious. Here's why. Because vainglory is not a sin that you can think your way out of. 
It is a sin that you may only worship your way out of. Over and over, coming face to face every week as we come together and worship together, worshiping and remembering the glorious one, submitting yourself, submitting your self-worshipping heart at the throne of Jesus. You know, I live in a household of musicians, and music is such an amazing gift. Our, our singing together is not accidental. It is so purposeful. Uh, think about what music does. When you set words and glorious truths about who God is to music, they have this power to sneak past the defenses of anxiety and fear, to get around the high towers you build of rationalism, well, talking yourself out of things. They have an ability to get past the centuries and past the guards and into your heart. Music has the power to get into our hearts. This is why one of the things I want to encourage you is never miss a song on a Sunday morning. You should show up early so you get all the songs. One of my joys as a parent over years was hearing my little children hum the words, or hum songs, sing the tunes to things they don't even understand the words of, and they're singing truths back to me. That's true. You're right. He is the glorious one. It raises my head. It makes me remember it's not about you. It's about him. This is what music does for us. Songs that grab our hearts and cause us to lift our eyes up off self and on to Him. So I want to close this sermon today in a way that's different from how we normally do. We normally go to the Apostles' Creed and we stand together and we say, yeah, this is really true. Today we're going to sing it. So let's take the doxology, which usually comes after, we usually do it after the Lord's Supper, and let's, let's sing this together. Let's call each other to remember these truths. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing these words together, these words of gospel truth.